Welcome to Money Markets and Masterminds, a CityWire South Africa podcast that delves into the intricate world of finance, investment, and strategic decision-making. If you're a fund selector or an independent financial advisor looking for insights, analysis, and expert opinions to enhance your perspective, you're in the right place. Here with me, editor Ruan Uesta. The Minister of Finance, Enoch Odegwana, delivered his annual national budget speech in Parliament yesterday. It's one of the key tools, together with the State of the Nation Address that transpired earlier in February, that the Members of Parliament can use to hold the government accountable for what it had promised to deliver and for how the allocated budget is spent. CityWire South Africa covered the budget speech extensively during the course of Wednesday, especially around the myriad of issues ranging from government spending to how the fiscus will be replenished through policies and plan. But I attended a media briefing with the South African Institute of Taxation, or SITE for short, where it revealed its impressions of the annual event, where matters of tax usually get the boring lap in the run, and where this professional body said very little breakdown was done on how new tax proposals will be applied and how the taxpayer will be impacted. So I invited site CEO Keith Engel into the studio today to assist me to paddle through the nuances of tax and how government policies are going to affect the taxpayer and their advisors. Engel is also the former Chief Director of Tax Policy at National Treasury. Welcome, Keith. Welcome. Thank you so much for the invite. So where are we? I think that's the bottom line of this whole thing. I think the big issues for taxpayers is... Look, there's no explicit tax increase for them other than the usual excise taxes. But the big one is, is they're not getting adjustments for inflation. So one of the great things that governments do when they start running into trouble is they rely on inflation one way or another in order to solve their economic problems. So what you see here is that we've simply had no adjustment of tax brackets for inflation, which means it's a, it's a tax increase by stealth on personal income tax um, payers. We did this under Gordon, I believe, many, many years ago, and we've been playing this inflation game for a long time. So it's not something you'll see immediately, but you'll find yourself a little poorer in a tax sense as you go forward, but it won't create a loud political outcry. Otherwise, the bigger ticket items that we're always afraid about, you know, raising the income tax rates or changing the VAT, Those things are politically unacceptable and other tax changes like anti-avoidance measures or new wealth taxes, the problem with those, those take at least one or two, three years to to, to take into effect. So this is a quick way to get the bulk of their 14, 15 billion, that and excise taxes. So you can always tax sinners more or decide that something is sinful. I mean, why... um, you know, electronic smoking has become sinful and that little, what is, I don't know, those little things that people use for various kids that are smoking the holy poly or whatever <laughs> that is, that's become a sin. And, you know, so government says, oh, we're just attacking sinners. So they're picking up a, a fair amount of money there. Um, does that really do anything for the economy though? So the problem really is, is this, you're trapped in a very bad paradigm. The government is is in a political paradigm where they just keep wanting to push the same policies the same way and expect growth and things to get better. The problem is you're not getting growth with those policies. The Minister of Finance being the CFO of the National Treasury is now stuck with more and more limited options. And so he's trying to pull tricks out of his hat in order to maintain an unsustainable budget. And so then you've gone after the currency reserves. You know, we're finding little things to find that money. 
But frankly, we're in a position where the expenditure is just too high. Keith, the fact remains that the only way to expand a tax base is to grow the economy and create jobs. But is tax policy in any way useful in supporting these endeavors? I think it can be, but as secondary. So I alluded to this before, but I think the main issue is is that, you know, we, we hope that, look, the government will go ahead and be anti-business and all of this, and then the Minister of Finance is supposed to magically save the day. And that's just not the way things work. Business looks at tax as a factor, but not as the primary factor for its decision-making. And unfortunately, this government, you know, it, the first problem is the government sends off a lot of signals of business risk. The government is not friendly to business. It's not friendly to foreign investors. And so, you know, they're not friendly to property rights. So you immediately have an environment which is not friendly. And then to throw a tax incentive in there, that's not really going to do anything because people say, look, uh, you're you're too risky. If you've got other things right, you're better off. And the real issues for government is that, one, you can't overregulate. And this government wants, they don't trust the private sector. So they overregulate. And then what they do is they stymie a lot of things with regulation because they can't support it. So the, the increasing thing you'll see people you know, complaining about is getting access to banking. You're seeing funding is getting harder because it's getting harder and harder to provide proof. There are issues where you want to get licenses and permits. That's become more complicated. Your annual business requirements of reporting is becoming harder. And so what happens then is you often have to do filings in order to remain legal. And you find that the government systems don't take those filings well, or they jam things up because if you haven't filed the papers right, you can't move forward. Those things, you know, those discretionary things hit business a lot. Now, here comes the tax man. Look, the taxes here are relatively high. They're not low. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to use tax as a lever, you have to lower it substantially. Now, we've tried special economic zones. But there, we're only giving partial tax relief. And again, we're not exempting anybody from regulation. And if you look at China and Vietnam and those countries, they gave full sale relief. So tax by itself is just not going to be effective. And there are a few little tiny incentives sprinkled here, like for electric cars. But these things really just don't work in, a, in an overall backdrop of business hostility. Keith, in the webinar last night, some of your members mentioned how the numbers of financial immigration has gone up and the applications to get tax agency mm. elsewhere is also on the increase. And this is to stop, despite the more anti-avoidance measures coming through and tax um, authorities clamping down on foreign trusts. Um, so what are we kind trying to do to keep more people to remain within our tax needs and encourage taxpayers to be more compliant? Yeah, I think, look, you, you, you hit some points there. I think the bottom line is, is that there's something wrong when people want to leave. Now, what you're seeing is there has been a steady migration out. As some noted in some more recent news, some people are coming back. So some of the world is not as wonderful as people may have thought. But even the people who are staying, and you can take a look at some of the other economists saying, yes, stay, but keep your money offshore. Sure. And why are people keeping their money offshore? Well, they're not really keeping their money offshore for tax. Some are, but most of them are keeping the money offshore because of political risk. And that political risk manifests itself in the declining rant. So increasingly, you're keeping your money offshore as a rant hedge. Now, and, and then you're saying, oh, we need to have tax rules to stop that. You're like, well, 
now you're making it difficult for me because I'm like, okay, well, if I want to stay and I have to keep my money here, well, then maybe I just have to leave. So government's reaction when they're not doing things right is to have more and more anti-gate rules. So you'll see this in California. California has become a very anti-business state and it's become a high tax mm. state. So if you live in California, your taxes can be over 50%. So the world is not perfect elsewhere. So they've become more and more anti-business and businesses are leaving. So what do they do? Or they keep going with whatever their anti-business philosophy is and they put more and more anti-rules to tax you upon departure. And what you're finding is people are just trying to get out of there and then they're not willing to come in. Now, South Africa has been a little softer about this, but it's not about anti-avoidance measures. It's about changing the environment so people don't want mm. to leave. And unfortunately, ANC is not politically liking that answer. So they keep pushing a wrong result and then hoping to beat you up if you try to get your money out. And, and, and that policy ultimately is not going to work. It might slow down the, the departures, but it's not going to really, it's not going to do anything in the long run. You really want people to want to come because you're the right place. To Keith, the truth is, as you mentioned, most of us are already playing the RAND hedge game, utilizing the few tax tools available to us and moving as much money offshore as possible. But tax incentives have become less politically popular over the years. And I'm also half shocked that the medical scheme credits weren't scrapped this year as well. But isn't it better to entice good behavior than punishing bad behavior after the fact? And are current incentives available to taxpayers even worth the effort. Yeah, let me just say this. There are two kinds of incentives. There are business incentives, and then there are savings incentives. So when, and sometimes government, you know, again, you use labels wrong, you get things confused. When you're talking about business incentives, they can work under very careful conditions where the regulations and the business environment is right then they, they may work. What you're talking about more is savings incentives. So the big savings incentives is retirement, right? So all retirement savings are is they're deferral mechanisms. They're not, every country has these, even the most pure that says, if you decide not to consume your salary now and you put it into pension, we will pretend that you're not making that money until you take it out. That's all it is. You can talk about deductions and exemptions, but let's say I make 2 million Rand and I put a few hundred thousand Rand aside, say 300,000, and I give it to my pension. Then my salary effectively goes down to 1.7 for tax purposes. The 300 can save and build up tax free. And then when I take the money out, I will then, um, I will then be taxed accordingly. So it's not really such a big incentive. It's more of a deferral. And those kind of incentives, especially the pension incentive, does work to get people to save. Um, unfortunately, again, we have caps on this. So there are monetary caps that haven't been adjusted for years. And then when you take out the money, there are also relief caps. Those haven't been adjusted for years. So some of those incentives, especially the pension one, works rather well. Um, other incentives and savings, look, we have not the worst systems. Collective investment schemes. Mm. They're not bad. You can get some, you, you take after-tax money, you put them in, but when you take it out, it's mainly capital gain. Insurance products can also reduce taxes to an extent. So we have some savings incentives. But when you're looking at savings incentives, 
they're 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 becoming increasingly tough, and again, you want people to save so they're not a burden on the state in older age. And there's also a growing distrust of the vehicles from a regulation point mm. of view. So when you're looking at retirement, for example, people are saying, well, I might put money in retirement, but does government then suddenly want to regulate how I use that money and not put it in the best products and that I have to start putting into government investments? Mm. So a lot of people are saying, oh, maybe there's a tax incentive there. But when I look at regulation, you're going to take my money via stealing it rather than taxing it. I don't think I'm going to yeah. go there. So our savings incentives are not great. Let me say that. And you do want to have encourage people to do things um, that you want. But our, I'm, not, I'm not saying we have the worst in the world, but they are steadily declining. Well, if South African financial advisors have not sent their clients an email reminding to top up their retirement annuities before the end of the month to reduce their tax liabilities for the financial year, I'm sure they did not do their job. But that being said, um, savings have to be compete with inflation on its own. Now they have to compete with tax inflation yeah. as inflation as well. What what does that mean for the greater scheme of things? Not I don't think it will mean um, good it's not good news for the savings pot, is it? No, I think one of the things you just on savings pot, it comes down to your earnings. So, you know, you can people will save only when they have enough earnings they can save. So when you look at savings incentives, Usually they're happening, they're helping the people in this country who are called rich, who's making more than a million rand. Now that's not rich people by any means, but the they you have to have surplus cash to save. And tax incentives, you know, to get people to consume less, uh, not really so very effective. But at the end of the day, the one issue is inflation, and it hits your salary this way. Let's say inflation increases by six percent so your employer raises your salary by six percent but then government takes away 45 or 40 percent of that so when you're getting an inflation increase it's never really equal to inflation because the tax man is taking its cut along the way and that's something that that so high inflationary environments become hard and then what happens is you've got people being forced to consume more and more of their salary with less and less savings left over. Mm. Keith, as a last point, I want to talk about value-added tax, or VAT, on digital services. And digital taxes have been a matter mm. of debate for many years across the globe, an issue which will impact the advisory firms specifically and also a way to increase the tax base. But um, look, when I get an invoice from Apple iCloud or Amazon Web Services, the VAT's already being charged. But why is digital taxes by and large being ignored by our policymakers? We are losing out big time, aren't we? Look, I'm not sure if we're losing out as big time as because, I mean, I, I know a lot of people feel that way. ATAF is pushing a very hard narrative on this. Um, you know, we're not Europe. Europe was losing a lot more to the U.S. on this issue. We do have imports. Um, if you take a look at the Amazons, as discussed, I thought very nicely by Deborah last night, when you look at your I, your bills on, um, your, what are those called, the iCloud bills, which are some of the things is I've, I've got, I'm paying stuff mm -hmm. I shouldn't. Um, there is a VAT charge there. Um, and what the, the basic issue on VAT was twofold. One was an issue of VAT. That we've picked up. The real issue is this, and it's, it's part of a larger issue. 
One of the things in the world is customs charges. Now, customs charges are a charge on imports. And we do have charges, and the World Trade Organization has tried to bring those down. And South Africa does have import charges. Now, remember, import charges drive up the cost of your goods. So it's it's a two-way street. What you're finding is that when it comes to cross-border services in general, imported services, there are no customs charges. And electronic services are, are an increasing part of those imported other services. And those services are not getting customs charges. And that's the money that I think people are really losing. The governments are really losing out if you believe in customs. And so where you see the VAT was like step one of that, but it's really very minor. And so the big battle was we want to get these custom charges through the income tax. And so OECD has come up with this complicated pillar one and all this sort of stuff. But really, the answer is if you want to tax imported services, especially electronic services, what you really then need is a digital services tax. And that's kind of what Deborah was referring to last night. And Kenya's put it in. I think the UK has is, is got it but delayed it. Canada, I think, has thrown it out there. And the question is, if you want imported services, especially electronic ones, then you have custom charges. You will get money from the foreigners. However, you will be driving up your own internal pricing as well. So custom charges, you need to think about carefully. But yes, you are losing a lot of money in a static way. Keith, in closing, what will be the biggest challenges lying ahead for tax advisors and IFAs in the upcoming financial year? Look, I think the biggest challenges for tax advisors is usually procedural and operational. Remember that, well, and there's also a secondary one. So one of the things that consistently goes, our practitioners are very concerned when they can't easily or properly engage with the revenue service. Mm. So if I can't get meetings to resolve issues, if I'm dealing with a system where the computer just doesn't allow me access or things get jammed, This is the problem for most of the practitioners because when they can't get through the system, the the taxpayer naturally says, why do I hire you? And they immediately take it out on the tax practitioner when systems aren't working properly. Now, I think things are better than they were, but they're far from ideal. And unfortunately, internationally, they're not ideal. So those battles continue. We've seen a few tinkerings at the edges. So in customs, in VAT, and on ADR processes where it seems like government is willing to pick up on a few little items. But some of the problems that government has is simple lack of capacity. Mm-hmm. And when that capacity is there, you can't overcome it. So that's the issues that you'll see mainly for practitioners. On a more policy level, one of the growing problems is, is that as government is demanding money and people don't have it, what you're seeing is a lot of taxpayers don't have the money to pay yeah. the tax. In theory, they should have it, but they don't. And so what happens is the taxpayer is suddenly in a position that they have to pay the amount and they don't have the cash in hand. And then the you know how do you work that out? You've got to make installment payments, other payments, and you start finding that you've got a you've got a partially indebted middle class who really can't afford this burden. And then the practitioner is sort of stuck in the middle trying to get them to pay taxes for money they don't have. And I think you're going to see that increasingly.
as time goes forward. Well, we have unfortunately run out of time. Thank you, Keith, for sharing your views on the world of tax with our listeners. Today, it was a valuable conversation. And to all our CityWire South Africa listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Money, Markets and Masterminds with me, editor Ruan Yurista. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to subscribe, leave a review and share it with your network. Until next time, goodbye. Mm-hmm.